Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the first Data Bytes episode of 2020, or should I say the first episode of the new decade. To kick off the new year, we've got Dr. Derek Fang from Yale University with us again. Hi, Dr. Susan. Always happy to be here. <laughs> and on this episode, we wanted to talk about a paper, a new paper that made some waves at NeurIPS 2019. NeurIPS is short for Conference on Neural Information Processing Systems, and it's basically an annual geeky party for folks who work on machine learning. In 2019, this took place in Vancouver around mid-December. Not a bad place to be in December. Just a tad warmer than where you are in Connecticut. Although today was incredibly warm. That's um, true. I envy, I envy your weather today. Yeah, which never happens. Um, so this paper presents a method called merged averaged classifiers via hashing, which is abbreviated as MAC. Which I think is intentionally set up so that the authors can come out with newer versions of their algorithm and present them as Mach 2, Mach 3, etc. You know, like the supersonic jets. Oh, is, is it Mach? I don't, turns out I don't actually know how to pronounce Mach. Uh, maybe it's an Australian thing. Anyway, peeling away at the cheeky branding, Mach or Mac, or however you pronounce it, is a method that can handle large classification problems in a really computationally feasible manner. In this episode and the next, we'll give you a sense of what this all means, what's novel about the method's approach, and as always, we'll point you to the original paper if you'd like to look at it in the detailed show notes that we provide. Yep, this is a first two-parter for our podcast. In this particular episode, we'll paint a picture of the specific problem that Mach addresses and sketch out how it solves the problem. We'll get into the more technical details in the next episode, so stay tuned for that. So the cheeky bit about the naming here is obviously that Mach is traditionally thought of as measuring the speed of something relative to the speed of sound. Mach 1 refers to the speed of sound, Mach 2 refers to twice the speed of sound, and so on. But speed isn't necessarily the selling point here, at least not directly. Right. So Mach is meant for really, really large classification problems, as in, you know, when you're dealing with something like Amazon. To give you a sense of what that means, imagine the number of products that are available for sale on Amazon. One of the data sets referenced in the paper contains about 50 million products, and I'm sure, you know, at today's rate, it will be 60 million by the time we broadcast this episode. The classification problem they aim to solve needs to ingest a query and spit out one of those 50 million products. You can imagine why this problem is extremely important to Amazon. If you're someone who's searching for something on Amazon, the faster and more accurately that they can link you to the product that you ultimately buy, the more money Amazon can make and the better you feel about your shopping experience. But wow, 50 million products. Right. And actually, there are 70 million queries that lead to those 50 million products. That's sort of the scope and size of the classification problem that we're dealing with here. And one of the things we know that does well in classification problems where you have millions of rows of data is deep neural networks, which is synonymous with deep learning. One way to visualize a deep neural network is to think of layers of Lego blocks, where each Lego block is a unit in the neural network. Starting from the bottommost layer where you feed in the data, imagine that every Lego block at a given layer passes on some information to each 
of the Lego blocks at the next layer. And then at the final layer, the number of Lego blocks is equal to the number of total classification labels. Whichever one of those Lego blocks receives the most intense signal then becomes the ultimate prediction. One of the computational demands here is memory, which is how many numbers the algorithm needs to keep track of as it runs. That will be a function of the number of Lego blocks. You can, of course, reduce memory demands by making the layers smaller using, say, as few Lego blocks as you want in the initial layers of the neural network. But once you get to the ultimate layer, you always need the same number of blocks as there are the number of classes. And that's exactly where the bottleneck is. If you have 2,000 Lego blocks in the penultimate layer, but 50 million blocks in the final layer, then that's 2,000 times 50 million, or 100 billion numbers to keep track of in memory, in addition to what arises from the previous layers. Depending on the specific optimizer used in training your deep neural network, um, that is the mechanism for getting the parameter estimates and refining them, additional memory demands might exist. A popular optimizer called Atom actually requires three times the number of parameters for training. So even in this very simple neural network where you have just a single hidden layer of 2,000 Lego blocks, we're talking about more than one terabyte of memory required. Get any fancier with your neural network architecture, and we may be talking about much more memory than we can afford. So what's the solution presented by Mach? Mach suggests that we break apart the massive problem with that prohibitive 50 million size into smaller problems. Divide and conquer, essentially. And what could be better than breaking the large problem into smaller ones that are parallelizable? So parallelizable problems can be run simultaneously. It's like if I had to prepare 10 dishes for a dinner party, that's kind of a pain in the butt. But if I could invite four friends and delegate to the four friends such that five of us each make two dishes simultaneously, we get to the eating part much faster. We've talked about how random forests are parallelizable in this way. You could spin off different subsamples of the data into different computers, which each grow their individual classification trees, and then they report back to central command to arrive at a final set of classifications. Neural networks, however, are not easily parallelizable. We talked about those layers of Lego pieces, but the order in which these computations occur in these Lego pieces really matter. You need to pass on the information in sequence from one layer to the next. Mock deals with this by actually breaking the classification problem into lots of little fragmented classification problems. The 50 million classes was our bottleneck, right? So what if we could turn this into problems involving just 10,000 classes and not 50 million? Now, we wouldn't just divide the 50 million by 10,000 to arrive at 5,000 or so mini classification problems. That doesn't solve our scale problem. Let's instead decide to create these 10,000 maybe artificial superclasses. What I'm specifically saying is that we would set up 10,000 bins, and we would put each of the 50 million products into one of those bins. So how do we pick them? How do we pick these 10,000 bins? You might think that the natural thing would be to put similar items together. So perhaps you have a bin for computer peripherals and another bin for late night snacks. But it turns out that each bin will be an eclectic collection of products with no obvious pattern. In the same bin, you might have the newest cat toy along with some brand of paper towels and a 100 watt light bulb along with a ton of other things. Later, we'll describe the mechanics of this procedure as it is the key contribution of the mock method, but it's a little technical. So for now, 
Let's not get bogged down with the nitty gritty. And for now, we've just reduced the size of the classification problem from a 50 million class problem into a 10,000 class problem. Many of them, actually. But using this neural network alone is not going to be helpful enough for solving your original classification task. We might ultimately classify a result into either the cat toy or the paper towel or the light bulb or one of the other items in that superclass, but we wouldn't know which one it was. As we hinted earlier, we actually want to take advantage of multiple neural networks. But if they are all the same, that is, with the same allocation of shopping items to superclasses, then we wouldn't be any better off having multiple networks. But what if we had a neural network that had a different allocation of shopping items to superclasses? So maybe from this second neural network, we find that the earlier query most likely belongs to the superclass containing paper towels, a bottle of sunscreen, some vitamins, supplements, and so on. Then in the predicted superclasses from these two neural networks, we can slowly hone in on the product. And you can imagine, of course, that two neural networks is probably not enough. So we would need more. But the question you might have is how many more do we need when we have 50 million classes that we then break down into 10,000 superclasses? If it's on the order of thousands, then that's probably not great. We probably haven't saved ourselves very much time or memory. The authors show that for this particular problem where we have 50 million classes, 30, that's three zero neural networks is enough for achieving better results than some of the state-of-the-art methods. And at just a fraction of the time, in fact, 10% of the time taken for the top competing method. Full disclosure, getting from superclasses to actual classes is a bit more complicated than looking at overlaps in the superclasses across the different networks. Basically, each network contributes some information about what class each query most likely belongs to. What you get from each network is a set of probabilities that the query belongs to each superclass, and then you can spread each of those probabilities uniformly across the classes that comprise these superclasses. So as an example, if the model predicts a 20% chance that your query should be classified as a cat toy or paper towel or light bulb, then you'd essentially spread that 20% probability three ways among those respective items. And so if you can get that from a single neural network, you can add such probabilities up from all 30 networks, figure out which product has the largest aggregate probability to arrive at your ultimate classification. So there you have it. We took a massive classification problem, possibly requiring tons of compute hours using deep neural networks, and broke it down into many small classification problems. Not small in the number of observations, since that's still the same, that's still 70 million, but small in the number of predicted classes. And now these are the superclasses, the 10,000 superclasses. And that has helped us use much less memory and run much faster. Yeah, it's, it almost seems like impossible that they could be able to do this. Um, it's sort of like magic here. Yeah. I would like to make a meta slash high level comment here, which is that this problem is archetypal of a good data science problem. So what's a good data science problem in your mind? So a good data science problem is one that utilizes both computer science and statistics in a non-trivial and oftentimes surprising way, usually invoking some sort of practical consideration. Uh, and to me, this problem is exactly that. As we're both statisticians by training, uh, we can start from there. That is, you know, usually you start with a classical statistical problem, in this case, classification. 
And then you might think about, how do I inject some computer science that makes this problem a little bit more interesting and different to the way a statistician would think about it? Right. So this problem of classification has been studied to death in statistics. And we have had many tools at our disposal, some invented, I guess, 70s prior to that. These are logistic regression, linear discriminant analysis. This is not new to us. But the period in which statistics became a mature field can be described as the small data age. We're talking about tables with 100 rows. That would have been massive back in the day. And if you flip through some old textbooks, you'll still see problems at the end of the chapter that contain the entirety of a data set. That might even be just 20 values. In such a setting, we wouldn't worry about computation. And then you get to the more recent era of big data where we're dealing with data sets with upwards of a million rows. You know, In this Amazon example, we're talking about 70 million rows. And suddenly, even solving things with the simplest methods become non-trivial computationally. Right? So there are really three main ways in which computation becomes a problem. The first is computation time. What that means is how long you know, your method takes to run. Um, the second is computer memory, or RAM, which is how much memory your algorithm is needed to run. Finally, you have the issue of, of storage and disk space, which usually refers to how big your data set size is. It's impressive that even as our computers have evolved to have ever more memory and ever fancier GPUs with faster processing speed, the speed at which our data problems have grown in size still outpaces those hardware improvements. But with respect to these three things that you mentioned, where does Mach come in? So for Mach, the thing that they're trying to combat is number two, which is computer memory. The practical consideration is how to deal with classification problems when your classes are in the millions. As we heard in the beginning of the episode, most classifiers are of the type where you predict a probability for each item. And so this necessitates your model having at least 50 million parameters, which you have to store in memory. So second full disclosure, we have done somewhat of a sleight of hand in this episode to really get across the whole idea of divide and conquer as it is used here in Mach. We have not talked about how that dividing part is done. That is the part about assigning the classes to the superclasses. This part is somewhat subtle and somewhat technical, but borrows from ideas that very much have computer science roots. That bit we'll discuss in detail in part two of our two-part story on Mach coming to you next week. So to summarize, Mach's divide and conquer approach is not a traditional statistics-oriented approach. It cleverly incorporates computer science ideas into the fundamental problem of extreme classification. But in the process of researching this paper, I have a feeling that Mach could be improved further by going back to some old statistics. Sounds like you're already thinking about Mach 2. Fingers crossed. So this concludes the first of our two-episode arc on Mach. So thanks for chatting with through this with me, Derek. Thank you for bringing me this incredibly fascinating paper to my attention. And to our listeners, thanks for listening to Databytes. As you can see, for the past few episodes, we have covered a lot of different things. We've gone deep, as in today's episode, and more so in the next episode, next week. And we've also done more overview slash fun statistics applications episodes, too. So we're always looking for feedback on what you'd like to listen to here. 
please feel free to send us an email at databytes.podcast at gmail.com if you have an idea for a future episode topic. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.